share information in ways that are across greater... As we become an algorithmically run society and influence... So, you know, one of, one of the big things about behavioral economics... Because actually women get the most extreme forms of... of so China is a country that... Manufacturing jobs, the optimizations... Whenever you see something that you never see... I think there's only a few... Numbers. I feel like my whole career has been a journey. Live from the Company Amphitheater overlooking Grand Central Station... I'm Nick Weinberg, and welcome to Company Conversations. Here, we share stories from the tech pioneers, best-selling authors, and world leaders who come through our doors to open up about their journeys, breakthroughs, and latest work. Each month, we broadcast a new conversation from the archive of our in-person series, recorded right here in the heart of Manhattan. These in-depth, nuanced, and personal conversations offer new perspectives that help us understand the modern world and our place within it. From our hard drive to your headphones, This is Company Conversations. We've had the good fortune of interviewing a number of interesting folks who've written interesting books. Most of them are written in a linear narrative. This is not. This really is a handbook. Can you talk through why and how you decided to write the book in this manner? Sure, yeah. Um, So I've had a number of different high growth uh, sort of experiences in my career. So um, I joined uh, Google when it was about 1,500 people and left three and a half years later when it was about 15,000. And then after Twitter bought my, my startup, um, Twitter was about 90 people and I helped scale it to 1,500 people over two and a half years. So uh, those were two high growth moments. And then similarly, I've, I've been involved with a number of companies that have gotten quite big and I invested in some cases early, in some cases late. So for the examples of you know, Airbnb or Stripe, I invested when it was eight people, Wish I invested when it was one person. And there was very common patterns to uh, companies scaling up. Like you know, each company is unique and context matters a lot, but the flip of it is there's very common patterns that you keep running into over and over again as companies start to scale. And so originally I um, you know, sat down over Christmas break about two years ago and just banged out a bunch of uh, content, you know, 150 pages about scaling because it was the same questions I kept getting asked over and over again uh, by founders. And I mentioned that I had this website that I was about to launch to um, John Collison, one of the founders of Stripe, and he asked to see it. And he sent it to a bunch of his friends, and then he came back and said, hey, can we actually publish it? And, um, you know, that, that sort of led to the, the book taking a physical form, and now they have a whole publishing imprint, and they're, they're publishing a book a month right now, uh, including some really interesting ones from Tyler Cohen and others. They had another one called The Dream Machine that just came out. So it, it was very organic in terms of how it, it came together um, and a little bit unintentional in terms of having like a physical artifact associated with it. That's interesting. I noticed that it said Stripe Press is the publisher, but didn't realize it was them. Yeah. It's incredible that yeah. they started a publishing arm. Um, the book, uh, which everyone read it, um, uh, we, the table of contents is very helpful in terms of thinking about the growth of a high growth startup. Um, you start with an introduction in which you, intru- uh, you interview Mark Andreessen. Um, and uh, he is a legend, obviously. I'm curious to hear, what is it like to interview him? Because when you read it, it seems like he's speaking a mile a minute. Yeah, no, uh, he's literally speaking a mile a minute. So um, uh, I think he's uh, one of the smartest people in Silicon Valley, and uh, he's uh, extremely fast with his thinking, and he has very concise sort of cogent like thought blobs you know, so I'll sort of drop a piece on, on uh, pricing or I'll drop a piece on product versus distribution and it just flows freely from his brain uh, <laughs> directly into amazing content. And so, um, you know, he, he's, he's definitely one of the smarter people out there. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've uh, always fantasized about 
you know, calling him up and saying, let's do a book that's just called Conversations with Mark and just capturing, you know, a full set of wisdom because that, that interview was done in 20 minutes and yet it had an enormous range and amount of content because he talks so fast. Uh, and so I'm guessing like 45 minutes you need to have a whole book. So, um, in, in the uh, interview, Mark says that tech markets have one winner. Do you think that's still true as we move away from infrastructure and towards markets like healthcare and fintech? Um, I think it's partially true. I think ultimately a lot of markets are winner take most. I don't think they're all winner take all. I think we went through a period where we had social networking and we had big media properties form and there's all sorts of dynamics like network effects that drive sort of the winner take all dynamic of things like a Facebook or, you know, in, in news and media, Twitter or things like that. Uh, but if you look broadly at things like payments, I mean, Stripe is a great example where you have PayPal, you have Adgen, you have a number of very large companies, uh, Klarna and Affirm and other segments, um, Zora for another type of payment. So you have markets that are massive and very fragmented. And often there's a lot of room in those markets for multiple very large companies. Um, the question is, you know, how do you really get to escape velocity in a given market? And I think it, it differs market by market. Um, I think one of my big misses as an investor was I didn't invest in Lyft, in part because I thought that may end up being a winner-take-all market, and maybe Uber would win, and I was totally wrong on that. You know, that ended up being a, an oligopoly market. Um, mm -hmm. There's actually a book called the, the, I think it's called The Rule of Threes, which is about oligopoly markets and how many markets actually naturally become markets of two to five players. And that's actually also a natural equilibrium point for a market. And so I think that's an interesting thing to think about as, as you think about your own startups and you know, what's likely to be the industry structure and where do you end up. How would you apply that thinking to crypto? Crypto is interesting uh, uh, because there's, there's, I think, two different layers to crypto. There's um, the tokens themselves and different use cases for the tokens. So, you know, Bitcoin is a store of value or Ethereum is sort of this decentralized uh, sort of global computer. Uh, and then there's the actual companies that are underlying that and effectively forming the, the fiat to crypto on-ramp or the, um, the sort of financial services or stack for crypto. And so Coinbase would be a great example of that. Um, you know, if you look at the crypto markets today, I think the uh, markets are reasonably fragmented on the company side. I mean, Coinbase, I think, is far ahead the leader. But if you go internationally, there's a variety of other players, although things are very early. Um, if you look at the currencies, I actually think they're, they have much more of the behavior of a winner-take-all market. And I think, you know, Coinbase is probably going to be the winner-take-all in terms of the consumer brand side of things. It's more just that uh, the, the tokens themselves have a very natural network effect relative to investor adoption, developer adoption, and um, miner adoption. And those three things form a nice virtuous cycle that kind of spins up and down uh, in terms of, of, of people using it. So I, I would sort of separate the two market segments. Okay. Helpful. Uh, chapter one is about being a CEO. Um, there's a lot in there about prioritization and working with the team. Um, prescient timing here. You list Jan from WhatsApp and Kevin from Instagram as being dominant founders, and both have now left Facebook. So is Mark too dominant? Is there a point where it becomes a disadvantage to have a dominant persona? You know, I think in the case of both of those companies, um, they sold. So, uh, you know, once you sell, uh, you effectively give up uh, control of your destiny, uh, no matter what promises are made. And so that means that the decisions that you make uh, aren't uh, necessarily the ones that, that get executed. Um, you know, w when I wrote about dominant founders, what I really meant is I think there's a couple of uh, statements that are very common in technology that I don't know are necessarily true. In other words, I have 
you know, I hate to say it, but like contrarian viewpoints on them. Uh, one of them is that you should always have equal co-founders or that you even need a co-founder, right? So the dogma is you should find a co-founder and that's the first thing you do and you should be equal partners and all the rest of it. And I don't think that's true because if you actually look at the data, um, most of the most successful companies, not all, but most of the most successful companies in technology have one person who's either outsized in equity or outsized in control or both. And so Steve Jobs had more equity and control than Wozniak. Um, you know, Larry Ellison was effectively a sole founder. Jeff Bezos was a sole founder. Um, you know, Bill Gates really uh, took over Microsoft as Paul Allen stepped down. Um, and you can kind of go through more modern examples. You know, Dropbox, the cap table is now public. Drew owned more of the company than Arash. Reid Hoffman was the dominant co-founder at LinkedIn. Um, you know, the counter pattern is basically Google, um, which obviously they were sort of equal, although Larry, if you look at the S1, had slightly more stock than Sergey. Um, uh, but the vast majority of companies that have been outside successful have some unequal split. That doesn't mean you need to do an unequal split. It just means that I think it's important to have somebody in charge. So the other way to do it is you split equity equally, um, but then you have a clear CEO and a clear decision maker because often the way that early stage companies blow up is through co-founder conflicts. And the most common cause of co-founder conflicts is two or more people wanting to be the decision maker or wanting their vision to be the vision for the company. And so I think that's often a failure mode and the equity is almost a proxy for the fact that that failure mode was cleaned up early. Got it. Um, you also talk in this section about um, Claire Hughes-Johnson, who's a big advocate of writing a how-to-work-with-me guide. Hers seems pretty straightforward. Um, did, you, did you ever gravitate towards that form of communication in color, or have you heard of any other CEOs who work radically differently in terms of presenting to their staff and coworkers how best to interact with them? Yeah, I thought um, the interview with Claire yielded a real insight. So um, Claire's the CEO at Stripe, and she joined, I don't remember exactly how many people were there, say 50, 100 people, and now there are 1,000 people. So 900 people joined since she took over, or as she joined as COO. And what that means is that um, there was 900 new people that had no context on how to work with her, or how to be effective with her, how to give her feedback or receive feedback, what was her meeting style or interaction style. And so um, she wrote this guide to working with her, which basically explained, this is how I like to give and receive feedback. I prefer written communication over oral communication in these instances. So it's basically a user manual to working with somebody, uh, which I thought was a really cool concept. And um, basically it means that there's 900 people who can join a company and have a lot of context in terms of how they should be working with you versus you having to go and have coffee with every single person, which is impossible. Right. And so um, I thought it was a really neat um, sort of uh, effectiveness tool uh, for somebody to have. Um, I think Urs had one at Google. Like Claire and I were talking about this uh, before, the, before or after the interview. I can't remember. Uh, he was an early VP there, and I think he, he sort of had a similar thing. And I know a number of um, either CEOs or executives in Silicon Valley who've now been adopting this. Um, one of them is the founder of a well-known company um, who uh, told me that, you know, when he's thinking hard in meetings, he kind of scowls, you know, like his face looks kind of angry. And so people walk out of the meeting thinking, oh my God, the CEO's angry, uh, right? And nobody, nobody wants to bring it up because it's a CEO and they're worried about it. And as a company scales, you'll find that 
you know, there's more and more distance between you and most people in the organization in different ways. Um, and so in his guide, he explicitly says, look, if I look angry, I'm not angry. I'm just thinking, you know, it's okay. Um, and so I think there's interesting quirks that each of us have. And if you almost front load or explain them, it's a really nice way to actually clean up a lot of misconceptions that could occur that could actually be troublesome later. So I think that guide was a really neat thing that I'd never thought of that, that she'd implemented that, that was really neat. Um, I'm going to jump forward to chapter five, which is about org design and redesign. It's kind of building off of what you just said. In there, you mentioned that the successful growth organization transforms every six to 12 months. Um, and when if I, I, that the examples you provide in the book really drive that home. And I think when you add into that the notion of some amount of staff turnover and promotion and so forth, you really are as a leader of an organization challenged to kind of reintroduce yourself on an almost biannual basis. Um, would love to hear if you have any anecdotes about how you keep that channel of con communication fresh as the company is constantly evolving. Yeah, I think um, that's one of the really tough things of scaling rapidly. And, um, you know, so say that you're a 100 person company and uh, you're doubling every year, you're doubling every six months you know, suddenly 80% of people will be new after two years. And so there's very little organizational context. Um, or after three years, the vast, vast, you know, you have, uh, every company has these tickers. Like at Twitter, we had this internal ticker of uh, what employee uh, percentage are you? So and did you, were you amongst the first 2% two pe two of people, 5% of people, or whatever? And something like, you know, two years after I joined, I was in the like 3% of you know, the first 3% of the company, which is ridiculous, right? Because you, you get the context that 97% of people are new after you. Um, and I think what people forget is that every time you take a big leap and scale, you um, are literally at a different company. So the way a 50-person company is run is different from a 500-person company. And part of that is just the number of organizational layers that you have between you and the CEO, for example. So suddenly, you know, if you're a 100-person company, you have at least three layers between almost every person and the CEO. When you're 10 people, obviously, there's zero layers, right? So every time you add a layer, communication shifts. Um, you start adding remote offices. Communication has to shift again. Like when you hold your all hands has to shift. And so a lot of companies struggle with, uh, with that transition, and there's usually you know, a standard set of things that you can do that every company does to try and fix that and fix communication. But you also have to realize that communication has fundamentally shifted. And the way you talk about things has to fundamentally shift. And you have to get way more repetitive uh, than you ever thought you had to be. So um, the way one, one person put it to me is, uh, it's uh, the moment that you are absolutely sick of repeating yourself is usually the moment when people on your team will start saying back what you've been saying for like a year. It's literally that moment where viscerally you're like, ah, I just don't want to say this again. This is so tiring to repeat whatever thing about the company. And then suddenly other people start saying it and it spreads and you have to keep reinforcing it, but you finally see it take off. So along those lines in terms of um, communicating what the company is doing and how that evolves over time, especially as the population within the company changes, how do you hang on to culture and defining the culture of the place and evolving the culture of the place as norms and values change over time and what people expect from their workplace exchanges over time. Yeah. Um, you, you offer a couple of um, examples around YouTube being designed with no lefties and so everything looked upside down and just mm -hmm. simple cultural misses that we can uh, all fall prey to. Um, any any tips you'd like to offer there? Yeah, I mean, as a left-handed person, I was uh, really upset 
about the YouTube thing. So um, I would definitely design for left-handed people first, and then you know you have to start with a small market and grow. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I think the fascinating thing is if you look at every other part of your company, you assume it's going to evolve. Your product is absolutely going to evolve. Um, you're going to hire new people. Uh, you know, you may enter new markets or open new offices or whatever, but your culture is a thing that everybody says can't change, or at least often people say can't change. And why? You know, uh, it, it's a natural evolution of everything else. The culture should also be shifting. The key thing is that there may be two or three things that are from your early culture that you really want to maintain, and you should figure out how do you keep those things. And we can talk about tactics to do that. There may be things that you had in your culture that you should get rid of. You know, maybe there's really bad elements in terms of how you used to operate, or maybe uh, you were too loose from a regulatory perspective or had different approaches that don't make sense in the context of what you want to accomplish or who you want to be, actually, is a better way to put it. Um, and there may be things you want to add. And so culture really should be viewed as a fluid thing. And I think, um, you know, the way the book is written, there's basically chapters of content I wrote, and then there's interviews with different people who are like great practitioners in that area. And so, um, you know, for this section, I also talked with Patrick Collins and the CEO of Stripe, and he talked about uh, sort of this notion similarly of cultural evolution and how do you do that. And I think it's, it's one of those things that founders often forget. You know, when you're five people, you're like, we're setting this core culture and we're going to grow off of it, and that's, a, that's the right thing to do. But then when you're a thousand people, you, many people will still cling to that and not let go. And often that's where you actually see early employees break because I think a lot of founders tend to adapt over time because they have the full context or picture. But for many early employees, it's a very scary transition where you're losing initially responsibility. So say, for example, you're the first designer uh, at a company. You were designing the whole thing. And then you grow dramatically. Everything's working. And you have to hire two more designers. And suddenly, you're splitting up the pie. So your role starts to shrink. And you used to have uh, you know, lunch with the CEO every day or the founders every day. And suddenly, you're not doing that anymore. And so a lot of early employees go through this transitionary period where they feel very uncertain and upset because they're losing a lot of things. And then later, if they stick through it, they'll gain a bunch of stuff back. And they'll, they'll become that group leader, or you know, they'll take on different responsibilities because they have the, the, uh, uh, the, ben the benefit of knowing the, the team very well and the culture and all the rest. And uh, one of the things I have difficulty letting go of is the early culture, or the early cultural tenants. Um, when I was at Google, I actually was sort of a bad actor in my own right uh, in some ways because um, you know, when Google was uh, growing really rapidly, you know, one day you'd have a peer, and the next day they'd be your manager, and the next day they, you'd be your manager's manager. And it was natural to think, well, what about me? You know, what's going to happen to me, and what's going to happen to my needs, and you know, what's my career path? Um, and so I, I was much more concerned about it. And then when Twitter bought my company, I'd already seen that high growth story and I'd already seen all the drama. And I was like, okay, this is normal. Like everything will work out fine. And there was a big uh, reorg in the product organization. Uh, and uh, Dick, uh, who was CEO at the time, uh, kept asking different people, well, what do you want to do? And a lot of people during that period um, advocated for themselves. Like, I want to take on this project or I want to take on that project. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? You know, what's most useful for the company? I'll just go do that. Like, I don't care. Like, the important thing is that Twitter succeeds. And, um, you know, after that, like, half the product team left and I got promoted. And it was simply because I, I put everything aside and said, let me do the right thing this time. And so for me, that was like a core learning from the Google days was things will evolve. Things are going to be really chaotic. If you have the trust of the people around you, then you can actually do amazing things over time and you'll have great opportunities. Mm. My impression in reading it, and, and hearing what you're saying about CEOs needing to routinely communicate exactly what the company does is also to communicate 
perhaps almost as often, how the company is meant to do it. Mm -hmm. This is what we do, this is how we do it. This is what we do, this is how we do it. And that can change a little bit, but as long as you're maintaining the narrative, people will follow it as it goes. That's a good point. Yeah. You think of a founders like um, Brian Armstrong from um, Coinbase. I mean, he's taken positions and reversed them, but he's very communicative about it. And so people feel like there's a certain amount of trust with him that mm -hmm. he will explain his thinking as he goes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think every company over time has to reverse positions. So things that were dogma in one period of the company's life turn out to not be the right things for the next phase. Um, I remember Google used to have a page where it said all the things we're not working on and never going to work on. And they had like messaging and they had, I don't know, it was like a browser and they had like all these things that they launched. And there was actually a giant whiteboard in the entrance of uh, Google's main office where they had all the joke things that they were working on. And I think they've built like 90% of it now. There was like satellites and there, you know, it was like all this crazy stuff that back then everybody was like, haha, that's so funny. Um, you know, it said Google secret plan. And it was really meant as a joke. And then they ended up building like most of it. They have autonomous killer robots on there. Actually, they did. Let's hope yeah. it's still there. Um, <laughs> so you've got, a, uh, you interview an, a, an incredible list of folks. Um, just curious, you know, which of these did you, and obviously, you know, it's like, we love all our children equally, yeah. but which of these sticks out in your head as you're remembering it as being the most profound interview or where you really took the conversation in a direction you weren't expecting to? You know, I think uh, all of them had really interesting tidbits and I, I don't mean this in like a, you know, um, bullshitty kind of way. Um, you know, I think I took away something from each of them, you know, like, uh, Reed Hoffman had really interesting insights on uh, board management or Claire Hughes Johnson bit about, um, uh, about sort of writing a guide to herself I thought was really fascinating. Or, uh, you know, I talked with Shannon Stubo who runs marketing at LinkedIn um, about marketing and the role of marketing, but then she actually starts talking about management and how does she manage at scale. And so I think for each of them, there was really interesting tidbits. So you so. mentioned Reed's commentary on boards. Reed sees the board as collaborators. Naval Ravikant seems to hate boards. So maybe you can spell out kind of the differing yeah. perspective those two have. Um, I think all startup advice is contextual. And the only good generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup advice, right? And so everything has to be filtered through the lens of who's saying it, what was their situation, what's your situation, what's your context. Um, you know, Naval and Reed had very different experiences over their lives as founders. And I think that's reflected in some of their comments. Um, I'd be curious if you, you know, what do you think, to, to, to make this topical, what do you think about Tesla's, uh, you know, Elon's relationship with his board? Any, anything yeah. you take away from that story? Probably you shouldn't tweet um, <laughs> buyouts of your company if you're, if you're public. If you're private, you can totally do it, especially the funding secured. You could say funding not secured, and then you'll be fine. Yeah. So that's my takeaway. Kind of forces board to be. Yeah. So if any of you are thinking of taking your company private, um, you know, you should not tweet about it and say the F funding secured. Um, the third chapter of the book is about recruiting, hiring, and managing talent. Um, one point you make is that new employees should have ownership early on. Now, I, you know, you can't. The, the, the pie only has 100 slices. You can't divvy it up forever. So what are, what are some tools you can offer or tips you can offer uh, in terms of how one can make an employee feel ownership short, short of necessarily distributing ownership? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, 
I think there's a lot of ways uh, to motivate uh, people and have them uh, care a lot about what they're doing. I mean, there's obvious things around transparency, around uh, how you think about product road mapping and how much of it is bottoms up versus top down and how do you engage people on your team and their ideas and how do you incorporate th those ideas into what they're doing. So obviously, if you've come up with something where you feel like you've collaboratively contributed, you're going to be much more engaged than if you're just told, go do this thing. Um, so I think, I think there's some pretty basic techniques there. I think also, depending on the market that you're in, it can be extremely motivating uh, to everybody, you know, founders included, just that you're in that market. So for example, um, you know, I, I started uh, this company called Color, uh, whose focus is on providing uh, information for people around uh, the risks that they may have genetically for different diseases. We started off with breast and ovarian cancer, and then we expanded to different cancer types and cardiovascular disease. And we recently um, uh, announced some things around uh, depression and other, other uh, sort of drug reactions. And uh, I think there the work is incredibly rewarding in terms of, you know, um, I'll give you one example, which is uh, very public. You know, one of our investors, uh, his uh, fiance at the time uh, took our test and it turned out that she was a BRCA2 carrier and there was no history in her family and she had no idea that, you know, she'd be at a higher risk of breast and ovarian cancer. And um, uh, so she told her mother about it and her mother got tested and she'd inherited it from her mother. And so her mother decided to get a nephrectomy and um, they found stage three ovarian cancer in her. And every time I see her and her now husband, they say, well, you saved, you know, or, or you helped save our mother's life, right? Because you caught something that wouldn't, in their opinion, have been caught otherwise. Uh, so those moments are, are very powerful and very motivating. Um, the genesis of color is actually my co-founder, Altman, is a BRCA2 carrier. His mother has had breast cancer twice. His grandmother died of cancer. So, uh, you know, it was basically, a, the company was a form of patient advocacy. And the people that we attracted were very motivated by what we were working on. Um, and so obviously that, that was just a, that, that's been a very powerful force for the company. Absolutely. Um, there's a section in the book on managing in a downturn. I want to ask about that because, uh, you know, we're all enjoying Nobody's this. Ever seen a downturn. I know <laughs> there's so many people working in the sector, myself included. I, I, I started working yeah. meaningfully in the technology sector during the boom and I haven't seen the bust. Um, so, uh, what's it like? Managing in a downturn, uh, and uh, you know, any any uh, advice you would offer people to prepare themselves for? Because I'm sure one is going to come at some point. Yeah, um, so we've def definitely benefited from a ten-year bull run. Um, so I think everybody's grown up in sort of an environment that uh, is uh, not anchored in sort of the standard business cycle, and uh, what that means is a lot of things are taken for granted. So, for example, capital is really easy to raise right now. Um, and when capital dries up, it's sort of like oxygen drying up, right? So uh, you really can't function the same way as a company. And um, so number one is how you think about money and profitability. And you know, honestly, in, in eras of loose capital, you want to use that as an advantage to move quickly. And then in eras of tight capital, you want to make sure that you have a, a, a lot of money that you're sitting on and or profitability so that you can then roll up things that are really cheap uh, because you know, some people may not have planned as much. Um, I think a second thing is if you end up doing a layoff, and that may be because of the market changing or it could just be because your business isn't working, um, you should cut really deep immediately. You shouldn't do a multi-phase layoff uh, because that really destroys morale. It's better to cut once much deeper than you ever think you should and then realize it was actually the right decision or maybe you didn't even cut enough than to cut multiple times because then people never know when the next hit is coming. Um, I actually moved out to Silicon Valley in 2001 with perfectly bad market timing. Uh, so uh, the whole industry was collapsing, 
And I joined a company at 120 people, it grew to 150, and then it shrank to 13 over five rounds of layoffs. And I got laid off in the third round. And they should have just cut everybody at once. Like basically they destroyed their ability to keep going because they wanted to do smaller cuts to help morale. And instead what they did is they just ran out of money because they had a much bigger employee base. Um, and uh, you know, in the, in the book I have this chapter called Things to Just Say No To, you know, and it, it's meant very tongue in cheek. But one of them is um, after like the second or third layoff, uh, the, the, the executive team of the company bought um, a pool table and a ping pong table. And it was supposed to help employee morale because it just laid off all these people. But anybody that you saw playing would disappear in the next layoff because obviously if they had all this time to play, <laughs> you know, they didn't have that much to do because the whole industry was collapsing. And so now anytime I see like a pool table at a company, I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, that's, that company's going to go. Things basically a guillotine. Yeah, so just don't buy a pool table. That's my <laughs> um, really good advice. That's funny. The, so the, the things to just say no to is in the appendix. Uh, it's a short list. I, since writing it, is there anything you'd add? Perhaps something about writing a book? Yeah, definitely say no to that. So, um. <laughs> um, it's very helpful. Um, I, you, uh, you, it's apparent to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that your core expertise, um, and you clearly have expertise in a number of areas, is around product management. Um, and I know a lot of people in the audience here are product managers themselves. Um, do you have your section includes uh, hiring tips? Maybe you could explain what to you makes for the ideal PM and what you're looking for uh, when you're hiring PMs and the various projects you're running. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's there's a, a you know at least four different types of product managers. You know, there's very uh, backend intensive sort of working on search or related products. There may be people who are very consumer focused. There may be like business product managers who are focused on. Um, you know, more like enterprise-related products where the product manager is more feeding uh, uh, market or customer feedback in to the team. So I think there's different forms of it. I think the commonalities is one, um, you know, uh, some strategic view of the product, the market, pricing, you know, that whole bundle of stuff. Two is the ability to prioritize aggressively. Uh, three is the ability to communicate very well um, cross-functionally across multiple levels. And then lastly, the ability to really execute and get things done and sort of help push the team to collectively get things done. And then I guess maybe the last thing would be a very strong sense of ownership where they realize that the buck kind of stops with them. And if, if something goes bad on the product, they, they need to jump in and help fix it in some sense. Um, so th those would be sort of my five things. I hope you guys are grasping that Elad's book, can co it covers everything. It's almost hard to do an interview when somebody can talk about everything <laughs> uh, in terms of what it's like to operate and grow a startup. Um, so the, 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 the thing is, the book was actually meant to be three times longer. So the outline uh, was three times as much, and I cut it down. And so it's almost like Game of Thrones, where <laughs> I meant to write a small thing, and I kept going, and people were like, ah, oh, just... It's just it's extraordinarily it. helpful. This is so. probably going to be a textbook in most colleges that are teaching on the subject. Really, read it. You'll you'll love it. You'll have as many post-its as I do. Um, I want to ask a, f a couple more questions and then get a few questions from the audience. So if you're in the audience, start thinking up your brilliant question for a lad. Um, uh, chapters eight and nine are about financing. Um, you give a great overview of. Uh, growth stage capital providers, early stage firms, growth firms. Um, 
are you perceiving are you perceiving there to be a glut of capital um and if so how do you think this shakes out what's your opinion on softbank and sequoia raising their massive funds i'm, I'm sure. curious how you see the capital landscape evolving over the next couple of years yeah i think there's sort of two things happening simultaneously i think on the one hand we have all sorts of trends in capital that I'll talk about in a minute. And then I think, I think on the second hand, um, we have really cool things emerging, particularly in the early stages. Um, so for example, I think the company is a great example of um, you know, really focusing on building community, bringing people together, and helping people sort of help each other as, as a common network of people doing good things. Appreciate that. And so I think, I think there's a few things like that that are really nice almost like jewels that are emerging in the market. Um, there's, there's one on the West Coast called South Park Commons, uh, run by Ruchi, who's in the book. And she similarly, I think, has created this really nice community dynamic. So um, you know, I, think, I think that's one thing on the early stages that uh, is, is an exciting thing that's emerging uh, beyond sort of the traditional Y Combinators and things. Um, on the late stage, uh, there's definitely a glut. Um, and I, you know, to some extent, you could argue there's always been a glut. Uh, because most capital isn't very helpful. Uh, there's some capital that's extremely helpful, but most isn't. And it's incumbent upon, or it's useful for venture capitalists to complain about how much capital is out there, because it's competition, right? Um, uh, the flip of it is SoftBank did raise $90 billion, uh, which is an insane amount of capital relative to the startup markets. And if you think about it, Sequoia's mega fund is, you know, one eleventh the size of SoftBank. So 11 Sequoias would make up one SoftBank. Or General Catalyst raised a $1.5 billion fund, or you know something in that ballpark. You know that's uh, 60 General Catalysts is one SoftBank. Um, so the amount of capital that they have to bear is immense, and I think their equivalent of spreading around some seed checks is $100 million checks. You know, like literally. Uh, so that has, I think, uh, distorted the market in interesting ways. Uh, one of the biggest substantiations of that has been the degree to which I've been seeing preemptive rounds happen. So by that I mean, you know, you have a seed stage company or a series A company, they haven't really hit the next milestone, but somebody comes in and immediately gives them a bunch of money at the next bump up in valuation without anything really changing about the company. So they're basically just trying to buy into the things that they think are gonna be most interesting or most valuable or that they don't have a chance of winning later or alternatively it's in their portfolio and they wanna defend it. Um, and so that behavior I think has shifted in the last six months, I think, VCs have also gotten sharper elbows in the last six months where I see more angels getting thrown out of rounds than I used to. And in part, that's because some of them have, for example, ratcheted up their ownership targets. So suddenly they want to own 25% of the company instead of 20%. Um, do people know about like why VCs go for ownership? Or should I explain that quickly? Because it's really important, I think, from a Some may, but I think perspective. that'd be helpful. Okay. So say that you're a VC and you're running a $400 million fund, which is a modest fund these days. Um, you're probably going to collect about 100 million of it in management fees. So 100 million instantly goes into the, the partner's pockets plus to operate the fund itself. Uh, so really, you're investing $300 million. Now, a good fund is something that returns at least 3x on top of the capital invested. So that means a $400 million fund uh, needs to return 1.6 billion to be considered a, um, a success. And really, that means $300 million needs to turn into 1.6 billion. Um, now, if you own 10% of each company that you invest in, you need to um, generate $16 billion in returns in order to get 10% of that, which is a 1.6 billion. 
if you ratchet up the ownership, you're doing the same number of companies, then obviously that halves, right? Suddenly you only need $8 billion in returns. So really, um, venture economics is driven by ownership because the ownership translates into almost time spent per company per dollar in. Um, and so that drives a lot of behavior on the venture capital side. Uh, and that's why sometimes VCs will say, oh, it's just too small for us as a piece. It's not because they don't like the company. It's just literally they're thinking about the opportunity cost of their time. I'm seeing more and more companies seeming, or, or you're seeing more conversation around companies uh, holding venture capitalists at bay and trying to find alternative funding mechanisms. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems to be burgeoning. I'm curious if you've been following that dynamic and have any thoughts on it. Um, sadly, at least in Silicon Valley, I haven't seen that very much. I think it's actually something that a lot more companies should consider. I don't think the venture capital train is the right train for every company. And I actually think there's a lot of technology companies that should never raise money or alternatively they're profitable and there are other ways for them to get help. So Zapier is an example of a company that I think only raised one small round, went profitable, and as far as I know, hasn't raised again. There's one company I'm involved with where um, they raised, I think, something like $800,000 uh, for their seed and they never raised again. Um, and I think that's a great trend. I actually think sometimes people blow up their companies uh, by raising money. So an example would be during, when Facebook launched its platform, there was suddenly this green, greenfield distribution opportunity, right? So anytime you have something new like that, like a ton of people rush in, and a friend of mine was running a social gaming company, and they were generating something like $20 million a year in revenue off of this company, and they're like, we should go raise money, and we should be Zynga, and we should do all this stuff, and I said, why? You know, <laughs> you're four people, you're generating $20 million a year, you could just distribute that as dividends and you just keep going. You, know, you, you may actually make more that way than by building something big. Um, but they really wanted to go big. They raised, uh, I don't remember, it was 10 or $20 million in their first round. They ended up buying three other companies and then eventually they just went to zero. And they never pulled any money out of the company because they went for the go big and they just plowed everything back into diversifying into a variety of different games and building a gaming studio and doing all these things. And they would have done dramatically better if they just kept running this four-person thing that was working amazingly well for a period of time. So, I, and it depends on what your objectives are, right? They wanted to build a company, uh, a giant company, so that was the right path for them. But they could have also made the choice of, you know what, we have this thing that's spinning off cash, let's use that to fund what we do next, or let's use that in different ways. So, you know, I do think there's, there's a number of examples like that. Um, last question before I kind of open it up to the audience. Um, to kind of bring this to a close, um, you talk about exiting, right? And the, the modern dynamic around companies generating exits. IPOs are notoriously down. M&A um, is uh, increasingly pursued and the outcome for early stage startups. Um, you offer a great framework for thinking about M&A, how to do diligence on a potential acquirer, uh, how to conceptualize team acquisitions. You've obviously gone through the process a number of times. Um, the floor is yours in terms of telling companies how they should conceptualize a target list of corporations they want to build relationships with, who to find in those organizations, et cetera. I'm sure everyone would love to hear about your experiences. Sure, yeah. So, um, uh, so I sold uh, my company to Twitter, but then at Twitter I was on the other side of it where I helped buy you know, at least a dozen companies uh, uh, during a short period of time, and then I've helped a lot of other companies exit. Um, honestly, I think I would not engage with corporate development, which is usually the buyers of companies unless you really want to exit. Because people get kind of um, uh, really interested as they start visualizing how easy their life would be if they didn't have to keep running their company, because startups are terribly hard. 
Um, and so it's, it's very seductive to think about, I'll be given a bunch of money and I won't have to work this hard and you know, I won't have to worry about my employees and about my customers and about everything as deeply. Um, or, I mean, you still have to worry, but it's very different. Uh, you know, I think if you decide to sell, my number one piece of advice, or my two big pieces of advice is number one, choose to sell to the right company. Because, you know, one of the reasons we sold to Twitter, and they, they actually approached us for an acquisition, but one of the reasons we sold to them was we thought there was still a 10x in the company. And uh, we thought the company was very early on, so our employees could actually end up with very large roles because we thought it was going to grow really fast. And because we were a developer-centric product, and at the time they had a thriving developer ecosystem, we thought we could have a lot of impact. And so all those things ended up coming true, right? Um, and in parallel, uh, you know, there was other companies we could have spoken to. We could have spoken to a Google or to others who were very great companies, but we just didn't think there was that same multiplier in all those different dimensions, right? So who you sell to um, is often as important as whether you exit or not. Uh, the second thing is when you're actually negotiating about, around it, um, you should realize whether or not you'd actually stick around in the company who's acquiring you. Because often, if you're, if you're a team buy or a product buy, you're not a giant asset like Instagram that everybody's competing for, um, you'll often get revested. And so if you leave early, you'll leave most of the economics on the table. And so you should really think through how long will you actually stay with whatever, whoever buys you because it may radically change how you actually think about what the offers really mean. Uh, because if you leave half on the table, it's only half as good of an offer. Right? Um, so, so you may go with something that looks cheaper, but actually you're going to stay there the whole time. You're going to be happy, but also you're actually going to vest. So th there's a lot of different things to consider, but I think the single most important thing is where do you really want to land? And then uh, you know, what, do you actually fit in, the, in a product hole or in an area that that company really needs people? And how do you position yourself relative to that? And usually you want to talk more to the product or engineering orgs than to, to corp dev uh, if you can. Thanks for listening to Company Conversations. For more, visit us at companyventures.co or at Company Ventures on Twitter to stay up to date.